Welcome, everyone. This is our initial school board um, uh, new board orientation webinar. It's the number one of seven. It's the first one. There'll be seven more after this. This is Timmy Tullis, and I'm in the office in Juneau uh, for the Association of School Boards. I have the opportunity to meet many of you up in Anchorage, and if I didn't, um, I hope to meet you sometime soon. Uh, Carl Rose will be coming in and joining me soon. He had a doctor appointment that was just running a little over, and he could not change it at all, and so he felt terrible about that, but he's leaving the state soon and had to get in to the doctor. So I'm going to start out this webinar, and then he's going to join in in a little bit and join us and continue. Um, Carl is our executive director here in Juneau in the office, and I'm the director of membership services. Again... I'm going to remind people that if you want your phone muted so that nobody can hear the things behind you, if you simply hit the star and then the six button, star and six, it will mute you. And then if you hit the star seven, it unmutes you. It's a pretty simple feature there. I hope everyone had um, good luck getting online. So real quickly, why don't we once again wrap around and just... Um, well, I know, I'll say who's here since you, a lot of you have the phone on mute. So we have some folks from Nome. Barb is up in Nome, and some other people are joining her. Out in Dillingham, we have um, Danny and Bernina right now, but I believe some other people were going to join them. And Rosetta is on the phone in Seattle from the Dillingham board, so welcome. Christina's on the phone from Caltag. And is someone else on the phone that I haven't um, gotten down on the list yet? If you want to introduce yourself, please take that opportunity to do so. All right, so we're going to start just by going over some of that basic um, history and authority and what, where did the school board start and what's going on and how did this all begin and where did the authority for the school boards originate and, and really, most importantly, what do the districts have um, and what do the boards have authority around. So some of you may be very versed in the history. Of, of this, and some of you may be a new thing, but um, in 1959, when the Alaska State um, Constitution was being developed and being created, um, there was some words put in there to establish and maintain a system of public schools open to all children of the state. And it was a centralized system, and it was known as the SOS. And um, it was really created, though, in the unincorporated um, areas of the state, and, and also at that time, as most of you know, there were the regional boarding schools, and a lot of the rural students went to those until, of course, Molly Hooch um, in 1972 brought her, her suit against the state, and that's when, when the state agreed and, and gave her the benefits, um, that's when all the schools went up around the state. We are kind of sliding back in, and we do have some boarding schools again, but most of them are part, um, other than Mount Edgecombe, are part of different school districts at this time. However, one of the biggest influences on this in the state and in the education system was when the SOSs, or that state-operated um, school system, was disbanded, and that was in 1975, and that's when the REAAs, or the Rural Education Attendance Areas, Sometimes I forget the acronym, though I know what REAA stand for. Um, it came what the state looked at, and there's 21 rural education attendance areas right now. And these were the um, when this was established, this made Alaska the largest school district, some of the largest school districts in the nation. Of course, that shouldn't surprise anyone, as we know that 
some of our school districts currently are larger than some states um, by by area and by um, not necessarily by the number of students, obviously, but by the area that they fulfill. Um, today, all school districts in Alaska, whether they're an incorporated area or the REAAs, are governed by locally elected school board members, and that is all of you. And so we have upwards of 350 school board members in the state. Some people often wonder, well, why are some boards or most boards only five people, but some boards are much larger? And again, that was one of the decisions in, um, as municipalities decide what they should or shouldn't have, some have decided to have larger representation on the school boards. And that's just something to be aware of that though most have five, some areas have seven, some have nine, and some even have more. Um, the authority of an individual school board member, you know, that is really, um, it's really set down by the district policies and, and by your standards. And so, you know, you know as an individual member, you can only make a decision as a board. You really are not anything more significant um, as an individual, but you are when you get together as a board. Currently, there are 34 incorporated areas, which are the cities and boroughs in the state, and there are still 19 REAAs in the state. And so, if you're interested in learning a little bit more about that, um, in the conference booklet that we handed out, there was a map of that, and you can find that map online as well. Um, so it's just something to keep in mind when you hear that word REAA, or you hear the boroughs and cities, you kind of know the difference. So the authority for school board members basically comes from state law. And the state law um, is constantly, you know, having little tweaks and changes, but for the most part it stays pretty intact. There is a, a handbook that helps you if you really want to get into the legal issues a little bit more, a book on the laws. Um, most districts have one sitting on a shelf somewhere. But real important or real um much more what guides your day-to-day -day decision will be the district policies. And those policies that are established and looked at and checked on and evaluated. And um, if you were at the conference, I'm sure you got used to hearing different people talking about how important those policies were. And not just that there are books sitting on a shelf somewhere, but that they actually should be looked at and should be discussed. Each year, we... Um, I think almost all, all of you, especially online, are members of our policy, um, policy through the ASB. And through that, we give you updates and suggestions every year that you should go through and look at and determine that maybe there's some changes needed here. And I'm going to move on and look at, before I jump ahead to you guys, I'm going to go ahead to the state law. Um, and look at some of the laws that you should probably at least know are out there and the powers and what, what that gives you and what that means you can do. You can look up those in the state law anywhere. Um, the same powers and duties are one and the same there. You can look at um, the control. Who has control? And hopefully through the trainings and through the things that you'll learn, you'll learn where as a school board member, um, for example, you do not get to evaluate each of the teachers that are in the district or the principals, but that you make sure that it is being done by the chain of command. And that's the important thing to know. Where do I, as a school board member, fall into these duties and responsibilities? What is my job? What isn't my job? Where do I turn it over to the administration? Um, 
Because the only person that school board members hire and evaluate is who? It's the superintendent. So I'm sure most of you were screaming that, but um, just knowing that is really important. That's who you are responsible for talking to and being in touch with. <coughs> um, one of the other big duties of, of board members is the entire audit and the budget process. And for those of you that were at the new board orientation this year, next door you might have realized that the experienced board members were going through an entire different day based on the budget. How does the budget work? Because I'll tell you that's one of the biggest um, concerns I hear from people all the time. I just don't get the budget process. I just don't understand it. How does it work? <clears throat> what is my role as a board member in the budget process? And so beginning to learn that, learning how your auditor works, where they work, what's important to them, that's something to become more familiar with. And we do, we will have a webinar in the spring for you around the budget process so you can get used to that. What is the relationship between the borough, the school, and the school district? <clears throat> how do you work with your community? That's another big role to, to begin to learn about, and it's, it's outlined in state law there. The relationship between the city, school district, and the city, and then what are your additional duties? So you can find out all of those things as you whip through onto the state law. The district policies, um, and again, we, we don't like to harbor on these, but we also want you to know that this is where you can, you can really save your bottom if you're in trouble or if issues are coming forward. If you have a policy and you follow your policy as it states, you will not be in trouble. And that's the easiest way to say it. I like to talk a lot about the case here in Juneau, Alaska. Some of you may have heard about or remember when they had the bong hits for Jesus. And during that case, there was a student that um, during an Olympic run through the town of Juneau, there was a student that had a, a sign right across the street from the school that said, Bong Hits for Jesus. And the principal did every single thing outlined in the school district's policies as to what she should have done. So when that case went all the way to the Supreme Court, they were not held capable for doing anything wrong because they had followed their policies to a T. So it's very important to think about that. However, the policy manual can be quite daunting. Everything is labeled in the 1,000s, 2,000s, 3,000s, etc. If you need to or if you if you want to get the best sense of where should I begin reading, I would start with the 9,000s. The 9,000s are the basic board bylaws. Occasionally, um, I've gone into districts and we spent the night just going through them and talking about them and reading them out loud and discussing them and thinking, is this to say exactly what I wanted to say or should we look at this a little differently? Some of it, um, some of the things that boards will have in their bylaws is that meetings won't go past a certain time in the evening, or the role of youth on a board, or what kind of work sessions boards have. So just becoming familiar with your bylaws, that would be the number one thing that I would suggest new board members to become familiar with as they start down that path. They will help you um, understand your responsibilities, and they really help you see Whose responsibility is it? Is it a board responsibility or is it the superintendent's responsibility? So just becoming familiar with those policies can really help you as you, um, as you um, work through your job as a school board member. 
Um, I'm not going to focus a lot on this page, the, the framework um, for the board standards, but we were the first state in the nation to um, develop board standards. There were standards for superintendents, there were standards for teachers, there were standards for a number of people. And so we thought, well, why aren't there standards for school board members? And so we set out to develop these. And we're thrilled they guide us in our day-to-day -day work here at the association, and we in turn then turn it over to you. But there's the vision component. And how do we have some vision? And um, it's kind of like if you were to go on a trip and you didn't know where you were going to go and you just sort of got on a plane and went and you had no mapping out of that, you need to have that vision and what you want to do. There's the structure. There's the accountability, which we like to think is probably one of the most important parts. Do we hold ourselves accountable for the job that we're doing? Are we advocates? What are we advocating for? Are we championing the vision of the district? And then the conduct and ethics. And the conduct and ethics, um, you know, some ways kind of seems like, uh, are you trying to tell me what to do? But in other ways, it holds us. You know, we, when we travel for work, we're traveling on the district's money. We're traveling on the, the people of our community's money. And we need to make sure that we're doing the right things with that. And so asking ourselves those questions, and we'll, we'll do um, different sessions around these throughout our trainings. But I just wanted you to become aware of those because you're going to hear a lot about those from the Association of School Boards over the time. So I'm going to, um, I, I just got wind um, from one of the, one of the other staff, Carl, is on his way, which is a great thing because you can hear him and not me anymore. So I'm going to start talking a little bit about the authority because that's one of the things that board members often wonder. What is my authority? What can I do? What can I do? Where, you know, what, where does it, where is the line drawn? So your authority is only as a group. So there is absolutely um no way that you as an individual person have any authority as a school board member unless the decision is made as the school board as a group. And so that authority can only be used again when there is a, an actual meeting going on. And so that open meeting and learning about what, an, what a meeting is and when it is appropriate to meet and when it's not is also crucial. Um, again, at the conference, there was both something at the new board orientation and a sectional on this because we know how valuable and important it is for people to understand what an open meeting is. And so your authority comes only when the group is meeting in an actual meeting setting. Um, the authority can only be used by the board acting in its official capacity. So that kind of builds upon that. And lastly, as I keep harping, it is not an individual a member. Occasionally in the bylaws, it will say something to the effect that the chair or the board president has to sign off on, on specific information. At that point, that is one of the few times where an individual has some signing authority. And it's just something to keep in mind that, yes, indeed, your board chair oftentimes or occasionally will have to sign off on information. And so um, we just want you to know that that is appropriate, but you should be aware in your bylaws when that is. Um, that leadership role, you are a decision maker. Sometimes you have to make the tough decisions. Sometimes the vote is not going to be five and zero or seven and zero. Sometimes it's going to be four and one, and you may be the one. 
But when you leave that room, again, you leave as a, as a concrete voice. You leave as one voice. So even if you were the one that voted against it, as a good leader, you have to combine and come back with the team. Um, you are a problem solver. You should figure out how can we fix the situation that's going on. I was very empowered recently when I went to the Washington Association of School Board Conference and attended workshops where a very large school district had had, over the last five years, millions and millions and millions of dollars cut from their budget. But the superintendent and that board of that school made some really tough decisions, but boy, were they creative in problem-solving ways so that their students would not feel the effects of those cuts. It was so impressive to see such problem solvers coming through as board members. It really showed what a group of dedicated five people and a superintendent, so the team of six, to do if they really put their mind to it. And then, last but not least, um, under this leadership function, you're a communicator. You have to be willing and able to talk to your constituents. Um, somebody asked recently, should I have my name... Um, should I have my name published um, and my phone number published when I am out, um, when, I'm, when I'm a board member? And my answer to that is, yeah. Those people were the ones that elected you. And so um, if you didn't, if you don't want to have it published, I would really question why you're doing the job you're doing. You need to have ways to communicate back and forth with your constituents and the people that hired you. Um, I have a question that someone wrote in, and I'm just going to read it out loud so that everyone can hear. Someone wrote, is it possible to ask for a roll call vote on a particularly controversial agenda item? The answer to that is absolutely. Anytime that you want a roll call vote, it is absolutely within your privy to ask for that. And it's highly recommended, actually. Um, you should be, if, if it is not um, a full a full vote of everyone, a unanimous vote, then you need to document who the nays were, who the, who the yays were. So absolutely a roll call vote is appropriate at that time. So good question. Thank you for asking that. So moving on to the, the primary functions. Uh, hang on. There we go. The three primary functions of school boards are to govern, they're the executive, and they're the judicial. Most of your responsibilities, we would think, would want to focus on the first two. You want to be the governance. You are the elected officials. Again, you're elected just like our governor is elected, just like our legislature is elected, and our school board is elected. Um, a few of you may have been appointed at one point or maybe filling a seat, but you are the governance of that, of that school district and keeping that in mind. You are the executives of that school district. You hire and evaluate the superintendent, and through those powers, you become the executive um, role in that district. And last but not least, you are a judicial hearing. It's not the most common role that you have, but you will have judicial um, opportunities occasionally. For example, a student, um, their last right of appeal will be to the school board. And so knowing that, and being aware of that is something that you, you have that quasi-judicial um, hat on that you will be occasionally called upon to, to talk about. So um, let's jump forward and 
I'm sure that Carl will backfill some of this, but what is the primary function of the school board and what are the powers and duties of this board? I'm having trouble forwarding here, so I apologize for that. In general, the responsibilities of the board, and we've said this, I've already said it three or four times today, but it is to govern the district by hiring the superintendent, helping set the um, expectations, evaluate yourself, and evaluate the superintendent. How is that done, you might ask? Well, I've already gone out to three districts this year that have brand new superintendents. And some of my other colleagues have gone out to other districts. And when we've gone out there, we've spent a day working with the board and the superintendent looking at what were the things that, that this board was looking for when they hired a superintendent. Maybe it was, you know, six or seven bolded items. So then we sit at the table and we talk about what does that really look like to the board? So we might have said one sentence that we were looking for, but what, how does that really pan out in the district? And so being aware and being ready to be able to share with your superintendent what goals are important to you as a board and why they're important and the expectations for them. When do they want it done by? How do they want it to look? What can, how can we measure that? So that throughout the year, the board is doing, doing such a thing. And then come the springtime, come the, actually it's late winter, early spring, um, looking at the evaluation of the superintendent. But before that often, I recommend the boards that you do a self-evaluation. It's a great opportunity to sit back and look at ourselves. How are we working? Are we doing the things we should be doing? Are we doing the things we should would be doing? Are we playing well as a team? Do we play well in the sandbox? Because sometimes we know that that's one of the biggest problems. And so when you're evaluating yourself, then you can in turn evaluate the superintendent. Again, different districts do the self-evaluation at different times. I have some districts who I'm going out in February to do theirs. Other districts I go in May, and yet other districts I go in August. So it doesn't really matter when you're doing it. It's the fact that you are doing it and that you're evaluating yourself because it's really not fair to evaluate the superintendent if you haven't stepped back and look at yourself and do an evaluation of yourself. So that's one of your biggest responsibilities. Your responsibility around policy is to look at the policies, to um, find out what works for your district, to adopt them, to um, go through and see if some, you know, what we recommend is that you take chunks and all, every year you look at three, um, maybe one through 3,000, and then the next year you look at four through 6,000, and then lastly, <clears throat> seven through 9,000, so that you have a cyclical committee that's looking at policies and helping you figure out what is best um, and how to manage the district set around those policies. As we move forward, another big responsibility are your meetings. And one of these um, webinars will be solely around meetings because meetings can be one of the hardest um, aspects of your job. If you like to think, I know how to run a meeting, and I know how everything goes and how it should go, <clears throat> but these can become, um, you know, the agenda has to be followed, they're public, they're open meetings, and so you have to have all work of the board done at these meetings. Some of it can be on a cons consent agenda. If you're not familiar with that, um, your board secretary may be, um, or your superintendent, so make sure you become a little more familiar with that. If you haven't sat in on board meetings before, they're fascinating to kind of, um, I mean, I, I get an opportunity to read the board minutes from almost every board meeting in the state, and I can tell you 
So there is a flow to some that is very consistent. You know, boards do different things. But making sure that the business that is on the agenda is what is focused on during that meeting is what is crucial. It is not um, fair to the public and the people that brought you there for business that was not included on the agenda. So just make sure you're focused on that. The budget and finance. Where do you even begin the budget process? That's always a good question. Where do we even begin? Again, the administration is the one that begins by presenting you with information on the budget. However, as they're developing it, what's really important for them to do is making sure that they're looking at the priorities and what are the goals of the school board and where should we be funding things and where can we make cuts. Um, again, it's up to you to help um, answer the questions to the public, to help have a good understanding of the budget, and to not just be rubber stamp, oh, yes, this is what happened last year, so it's going to happen this year. It's asking the good questions at the right time for the planning of the budget. Around the instruction piece. You know, what is it? Um, I don't like the curriculum that my fourth grade son has. So what can be done? Um, so you need to really understand what are the philosophies and the goals of your district and what is the instructional process that you want? Um, what, what are the, you know, it is not up to the board to determine what should be included. It's up to the professionals to decide that. And I think I hear Mr. Rose walking in the room, so this is wonderful. So, Carl, we're just talking about instructions. I am going to, and a lot of them are on mute, so they can't say hi to you. But I can tell you who's online if you would like. So, so I'm going to let Carl pick up here and maybe even backtrack a little. But um, I'm going to sit in the room with him. So, Carl, you can breathe. It's okay. But right now we have people from Nome and Dillingham and Caltech and um, who else has logged on? I think there's a few more. Who else is online that maybe wasn't here to start with us? If you'd like to say hi, you're more than welcome to. Anybody on mute? I think a lot of them are. So. Okay. so, Carl, this is where we were just going through these responsibilities, but then you can also back up and put in your two cents on what I've talked about. So. Well, hello, all. <laughs> uh, I just got in. We're having uh, quite a bit of snow down here in Juneau, and uh, I just uh, I got detained. Let's see. We're picking up where... We were just talking about the responsibilities, and I just started to talk about their role in instruction. Mm -hmm. uh, if I can just share with you, uh, if you haven't touched on this, uh, one of your responsibilities, in fact, a major responsibility, I think, is one of oversight. Did you speak about that? A little bit, but you can certainly talk about that. I think uh, what happens is that uh, is... Is everyone new board members? Are we all new yes. board members? Yes. Okay. Um, you know, you have professional staff. Uh, you have administration. You have a superintendent. Um, you have people available to you to help you deal with all of the requirements under the law. You don't have to hire every individual. You don't have to uh, develop every policy. You don't have to write up every budget. What you do have to do 
is to have a general understanding and provide some level of oversight. And the reason or the way you provide that is arming yourself with the simple question, why? If you don't understand uh, what's taking place, a simple question, why, would help people explain to you the reasons that you do what you do. Uh, did you talk briefly at all about um, board board standards? I did, but I said next okay. week Carl was, or Norm was going okay. to be talking more about them. Well, with regard to board standards, what you have is um, we try to develop a collective vision of what it is that we're trying to do as a board uh, for your community. We take a look at the structure to see if your structure, the way you operate, can accommodate that vision, and if it can't, uh, then one or two things have to change. You either have to change the structure or the way you operate, or you have to change your vision. I don't advise that. If you think your vision is valid, where you want your communities to go, then some adjustments to your structure, maybe your policies, maybe your budget, maybe your negotiated agreements, uh, maybe even the changing of some laws might be required to allow you to to accommodate the vision of where you want to go. Once you've done that, the ability to hold yourselves accountable for what you're doing by reporting to your communities, I think, is critically important. Once you've done those three things, you put yourself in a position to advocate for what you're trying to do, and that would be with the State Board of Education, the department, the legislature, or even the governor. And then, of course, the issue of conduct and ethics is something that you have to self-fleece yourself on. I mean, as an elected, as an elected official, people look to you for uh, uh, leadership. They look to you. Uh, they, they look to you for guidance. They look to you for direction. And when I say look to you, they look to you as a body. So, the resources that you have available to you with your superintendents, your administration, your professional staff, um, and all of the facilities and classified personnel that you have, all of these people are at your disposal as a board to be able to get information from them and to help them shape uh, some of the opinions that you might have. So the question is, how do you go about doing this? I would advise you not to ask why in an open board meeting, if you could do it by visiting your superintendent and saying, I don't understand this, could you explain to me why? Um, do these things when it's convenient for you over a cup of coffee, schedule a time when you can go in and see your, your superintendent as, let me remind you that your superintendent is your uh, chief executive officer. This person is a member of your board, a non-voting member of your board, but this is the person who's going to execute your policies and desires. So it helps to have a good relationship with them, and you form that relationship by going and visiting from time to time and asking the questions that you might have within the privacy of someone's office so that they can explain and so that you can understand. By asking the question why over every issue that's on the agenda is very time-consuming, and it takes a lot of time out of the agenda, and I think it takes your time and tempo away as you're doing your public business in public. So, 
let's get back to where you were at, your responsibilities for instruction. Um, if you are recently um, uh, elected to the board, um, I would imagine that your district has established an educational philosophy and goals. You should familiarize yourself with that and, and ask your superintendent why have these things been chosen and you know why they're important, just to help you understand where the process is headed right now. Uh, I think you need to engage in that because though you may have some ideas of where you should be going, there are either five or seven or nine or 11 other members of your board, depending on what the size of your board is, that may have an opinion on that. And I think you want to allow yourself an opportunity to have conversations with your fellow board members to understand why you do what you do. Um, as we start to talk about determining the scope of your educational uh, uh, instructional program, just by educating yourselves on what your offerings are, what your capabilities are, depending on the size of your district, uh, you may have far-ranging uh, offerings. And if you're a very small district that has limited staff, you may be, uh, you may have responsibilities, but uh, um, you may not be able to fulfill all of the things that you'd like to uh, as, as a board. So it's important to understand what your parameters are, what your budgetary limitations are, how many students you have, what kind of staff do you have, are they dispersed in small districts, are you a single site district? You know, you, you just need to understand why you're doing what you're doing and what the, what the limitations are. I think I've just covered the, the next issue, one of personnel. Carl, can I read you a question that someone just wrote in? Sure. It said, it is within the preview of the, either the principal or superintendent to hire or fire without board approval. Question mark. What about the elimination of a program? Who is responsible for that? Uh, those are board decisions. Uh, with the hiring and the firing, that's what you hire your superintendent to do. Um, actually, the actual approval of hiring and firing is done by the board. But you have a chief executive officer to go out and do the interviewing and look to what kind of personnel you're looking for uh, and bring the best qualified people to you for, uh, uh, for approval. In most cases, that'll be done, has to be done before you even maybe have your first board meeting. So the question is, do you want to tie your hands and not hire people and not allow your superintendent to hire, or do you want to give him that, that latitude to go out and hire with approval to come at your first meeting or, or of your of your session? Uh, remember, in oversight, you want to hire the best possible person you can as your superintendent to carry out the will of the board, and then authorize that person to go out and do your bidding. In terms of firing, um, there's a little more latitude there. If you're going to non-retain someone, you have a period of time and there's a process that you go through for non-retention. Uh, in order to go out and fire someone, you have to have grounds. You know, a, a non-retention is different than a dismissal. A dismissal is something that happens when someone has, has done an egregious act that may have been a felony, it may have been uh, uh, more included uh, or involved moral turpitude, or uh, uh, maybe even a uh, uh, 
a gross, uh, how would we say, uh, uh, a gross departure from a, a direct, uh, a directive of administration. If you're going to non-retain somebody at the end of the year, you have an evaluation process that you go through that includes the hearing. Uh, that's that's where a board would be involved. So your your superintendent has the ability to hire and fire if your board says so. Now, if you think about this, if you don't give your superintendent the ability to hire contingent on your board meeting, then your board may have to go out and actually do the interviews and do the actual hiring, which is very uh, time-consuming and in many cases not practical. So to have an administration that is charged with getting the best possible people available uh, in a timely fashion to bring it before the board for, for hire, it's appropriate if the board thinks it's appropriate. And just imagine if your board had to travel, and some boards do travel to interview to ensure that the people that they bring back for recommendation uh, meet the requirements of the board, but seldom does an entire board representing a majority of the board or a quorum, if you will, go out and do those things. And just Carl, the such in, this is Timmy. Um, at our Winter Boardsmanship Academy this year next week up in Anchorage, the entire workshop is focused around the board's role on personnel issues and how they can work and should work. And, and so I just, if anybody's attending that, they may learn more about that. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think it's important to know that we have laws that govern the non-retention of uh, employees, and we also have laws that govern the dismissal of employees, and they are very different. Um, any questions, or should we move along to move the next? Move along, and then if they can type questions in. Okay. okay I'm monitoring that. <laughs> so the next uh, issue is collective bargaining and student services. Once again, as I mentioned earlier, you have people in your uh, in your employ that are capable of advising you and working with you. The issue of collective bargaining is one that uh, is very interesting because many boards want to get involved in this area. Some of them have the capability to do so as a result of maybe their background or their professions. Some of them have been involved in negotiations at the local level and are very familiar with the laws. And so some of them do that. But in collective bargaining per se for a board, you want to provide guidelines in terms of what is negotiable, what the board feels is negotiable, and to ratify contracts. When you have come to uh, a tentative agreement on all points of your contract, you actually ratify the contract. Now, if you have a five-member board, it would not be wise to have three members of your board in a negotiating team because that would represent a quorum of your board. And upon coming to any kind of a tentative agreement, you would actually ratify that point. So I would recommend that the board not serve on a negotiating team, especially with the majority of its board. That the board take a look at its administration and find out uh, what kind of capabilities you have to represent yourself. Now, I, I just want to be very careful when I say this. Um, normally in negotiations, your representatives are represented, represented by a union. These unions are professional neg negotiators. Their job 
whose job it is to represent their members and to advance their concerns in the areas, mostly in the areas of salary, benefits, and working conditions. And that would include not just money, but language. And they're very well versed in the law. On the board side, you need to have somebody who's equally as adept at that. If you don't have that person on the board, at least have someone who is an advisor to the board. Um, two, uh, uh, two things to be mindful of. One, do not have your board represented by a quorum, a majority of your board, one. And number two, uh, take the advice of a professional that may even represent you at the table and bring back these recommendations within a context so that the board can make decisions in full view. Now, now some of the negotiated points that people may want to talk about could be quite, uh, uh, how would I say, complicated. They could be quite, uh, they could have expensive ramifications for long term. And so when you look at these, you want to have somebody who can make recommendations to you after giving you a full uh, perspective of what is at stake. Because when you come to agreement, those agreements are in place and have to be removed from a contract. And you will find that it's easier to add things to a contract than it ever is to remove them from a contract. Now, these contracts, if they're negotiated well, they can be managed in good faith, and they keep you in good stead with your community and with your employees. But I think if you have hasty negotiations and um, your, your proposals have not been thought out clearly, and they may have some long-term implications that the board or consequent boards may have to deal with, trying to manage these provisions might be very, very difficult. So uh, my advice to you, and I would just say this, that negotiating contracts, collective bargaining, is an executive function. It's not, it's not a public function. It's not a, a function for a school board, though some school boards are well uh, trained to be able to do things like this. It's an executive function to try to come to agreement with your employees that is fair and equitable to all concerned, and that means fair to employees or special interest groups, fair to management, which is who you would be representing, but also fair to the community that, uh, that will have to live under the provisions of this contract. So, so your job in terms of oversight, I think, is very important and not one that you have to do by yourself. Many times you will be, feel like you're forced to do something in collective bargaining that you aren't prepared to do. Uh, you should have some professional help here that helps you. Uh, most of your superintendents can either provide that service for you or can get someone who can, and, and I would advise that. Uh, on the next issue of uh, student services, uh, when you talk about establishing policies for admission and attendance and rights and responsibilities and discipline and welfare, these are the kinds of things that should be in your policy. They should be in your student handbook. These are just uh, issues that establish and provide a guideline for conduct. And these should be well thought out so that they can be articulated clearly and try to remove any ambiguity, if you will. 
you will find that in public policy, the clearer you can make your statements in terms of policy statements, the easier they're going to be to administer. And, and you'll find that sometimes when people uh, try to get too deep into issues with policy, they become very convoluted and nobody understands what the policy means. So um, I think you've talked about, probably talked about policies and regulations. Uh, I think the point I want to make is the policy, policy should be a clear statement of what the position of a school district would be. And an administrative regulation should be a process by which you will carry that out. And don't get too confused because sometimes we have a tendency to put administration regulation language into policy and all of a sudden it becomes convoluted and hard to deal with. But for student services, under student services, just think about what a clean set of policies uh, with rights and responsibilities and discipline and welfare and attendance, clear policies that everyone understands how, how much easier it is to administer and manage uh, an issue of like student services with those kinds of requirements. Uh, on the responsibilities for facilities and public relations, in law we have uh, we have statutes that describe um, priorities of facility replacement, and I think it goes the highest priority. I think is unhoused children. Second priority is. Uh, uh, health and safety, third priority, I think is, uh, um, I'm, I'm stating without looking at statutes, I think the third priority is code upgrades, and there are some others. But around those general principles, you should be developing policies that monitor the condition of your, your facilities should they require major maintenance or repair. Example, it's been my experience that if major maintenance and repair is left unchecked, you will be facing a replacement, uh, uh, which is far more expensive and far more difficult to do. So um, if you can take care of a roof repair before it starts leaking and create water damage or maybe dry rot, which requires major maintenance or replacement, that's the whole idea behind these policies, to try to maintain your facilities uh, and take care of them so that uh, they're not in disrepair and so that they don't deteriorate as fast as they would if they were un, uh, unmonitored. Community relations. Um, I think this may be one of the most important uh, responsibilities, I think, of your board. You know, when you ran for election and you campaigned, that was not community relations. You were asking for people to trust you to carry out the responsibilities of the office of school board. But when you act as a liaison between schools and communities, you, you'd be surprised how much people in communities do not understand, not understand about municipalities or government in general. They do not understand, I mean, aside from the civics lesson that they may have had in high school 40, 50 years ago, they don't really understand uh, how things work. Your job on the school board 
is to try to understand where the money comes from, where the money is spent, why the money is spent there, what kind of decisions the legislature or the State Board of Education or the your governing body, whether it be an assembly or, or a city council, what kind of issues they're dealing with that could have an effect on you. And your ability to, to, to meet with your community should not be only the school board meeting. You know, if you have a chance to attend functions at the school, if you have a chance to attend, uh, I don't know, in some small communities, you, you may have... Um, um, uh, meetings in town that uh, could be around, you know, issues such as local boundary commissions or it could be um, deals with the Chamber of Commerce if you have one. It could be just meetings of uh, people who are getting together to to have uh, uh, family or, I'm sorry, um, town hall meetings. These are the kinds of things that I think school board members would really enhance their understanding of what the community's needs are, as well as explaining to the community why you can, why you cannot, and why maybe you should consider doing the things that you do. One of the first things we talked about in board standards was creating a, um, a uh, shared vision. Can somebody explain to me how you create a shared vision without meeting with people in your community? Not tomorrow news, but they might be able to. Yeah, but I mean, if we cannot create the forums by which we can visit with some of our constituents, whether they agree with us or whether they don't, um, we are fairly myopic in, in our decision-making process because we don't know what people in town are thinking. So, with regard to community relations, I would encourage you to to look at how you can interface with your community not just as a school board when you're in formal session, but when you can uh, be at open houses or work sessions or, you know, think about what works best in your community. And uh, that would be very, very helpful. Um, I'm moving towards a wrap-up here. Um, I'm going to talk to you briefly about the, the three uh, primary functions of government. And I mentioned this, but I just thought it would be good to hear it from you too, Carl. So. I think the issue is one of, um, when we look at, at uh, the term governance, uh, let's use the term legislative for that. From the standpoint of the, 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 the three functions of gov government as we understand them in a democracy is a legislative, an executive, and judicial. The legislature will pass laws, your borough assembly uh, will pass ordinances, the school district will make decisions based on laws um, and court decisions that need to be uh, codified, they need to be justified. You just don't go out and render decisions. And the way that you hold your, uh, your legislative body accountable is by the public. Now, once once a, a law or a policy or an ordinance has been passed, it needs to be executed, and that's normally done by the president, the governor of the state, or the mayor of your borough or city, if you have a strong mayor, or the, the executive administration will carry that out. 
if you disagree with the law, if you disagree with the administration carrying out something, you have a third level of recourse, and that's to the executive, to the judicial. With the judicial, this is the courts. If you think something's unconstitutional with the legislative body, you have the right to, to claim that in the court. If you think that somebody has misrepresented the law or is not, a, you know, not meeting the letter of the law and executing or has interpreted the law uh, in a vague fashion and you disagree, you can still go to the judiciary to, to do that. The judiciary cannot appropriate money. They can't write laws. Their job is to interpret the law. So when you look at these three forms of government, it's a means by which these are a separation of powers so that accountability can be questioned at every state. Now, if you agree with a court decision, like legislators have from time to time, you can go back and change the law. If you disagree with an interpretation of a constitutionality, you can change the constitution. These things take time, and, and, and they should take time. So this is to allow us, or to, to, to not allow us, to be frivolous in our action thinking that, you know, we have the authority to do something and nobody else has any recourse. People do have recourse. They can go to the legislative body, they can go to the administration or executive body, so they can uh, engage in the courts. So with that, um, this is just kind of a primer. Let me close by saying this. Um, aside from interfacing with your community and dealing with community and relations, the most important function that you are going to provide is one of oversight. And if you don't know why your district employs the policy that they employ or have passed the budget that they passed or have uh, agreed to whatever uh, decisions that have been made in your negotiated agreements or, or whatever, you have a right to question that, but you can only question that as a board. So I think the board has to provide itself with the opportunity to have conversations to try to understand what you're dealing with. And you're really doing the public a service. This is a public service. And if you do it well, the public will appreciate it. If you do it badly, you'll have a lot of people at your school board meetings. So with that, I will open up to any questions that you might have. And you hit star seven to unmute your phone if you have questions for Carl. Anyone in particular have anything? I also see there's some Chatham board members on. That was one other district I didn't mention earlier. Well, we're really excited that all of you were on for today's call. We will have another session in two weeks from today, and Norm Wooten, who is on staff as well as the past National School Board Association um, president, will be um, covering some more issues for us, and then we'll pick back up after the new year. So any questions or final comments? <laughs> We thank you all very much for participating in this first one. We hope it's somewhat beneficial and at least starts to give you an overview. Um, and we look forward to having you on the next one. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Please stand by.